This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. We understand that some of our opinions will not be shared with many people and hope you can still bear with us in order to hear amazing Wisconsin-based stories. We are not licensed therapists or able to give legal advice by any means. Our show notes will provide all of our source materials included for each episode. Now Now on on to to the the show. Of Wisconsin. I'm Fallon and I'm here with Mims. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, I know that our listeners aren't aware that I just took a two week vacation because we didn't skip a beat. We pushed out content like nothing ever happened. So mm-hmm. we're just that good. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but I'm finally back from being in tropical weather and I come back and it's like a snowstorm so it's kind of an adjustment yeah um but I'm happy to be back in the groove of things and with my dogs especially I did miss them a lot I bet you did look like really at home on the beach though I was yeah I truly felt like I could be there forever yeah um, I was like, I need to go. Yeah, I think everybody needs to go. Yeah. The people there are so different from the the mainland because they're more of a like, we'll get there when we get there. Today is a beautiful day, just enjoy it. And here it's so like, we gotta go, we gotta rush, we got a billion things to do. I got lists and all that and it took a lot of brain power to just go with the flow like how they did yeah i actually took a few days where we my husband and i just didn't do anything i was like i have a book to read and he had like his little phone games and i'm just like let's just do nothing on the beach and just like relax and that was that meant a lot honestly that sounds amazing that was awesome. That's my fantasy right there. It's reading yeah. a book on the beach and doing nothing. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> um, so I have a few things that I want to start off with. While I was out there, I brought a book with me and it's called A Rage to Kill and it's by Anne Rule. It has 10 different stories, uh, true crime um, that happened in Washington. These 10 stories I've never heard of. I've never seen them, they're older, but I've never heard anybody talk about them. And we're, you know, you and I are pretty big true crime fans. So I'm surprised right. I've never heard of these stories before. It's such a good book. She did such a great job. And I basically sped through the whole thing just to get to the end because I was just so excited with each story. Um, so I highly recommend it. I'm going to put the link in our show notes. So if anybody's interested, I know it's not Wisconsin based, but any true crime fan would definitely enjoy it. 
Yeah, I love Anne Rule books. You She's do? a great author. Yeah. yeah. And she has like a shit ton more like this. Yeah. So I I literally grab I so before going on vacations, I go to the thrift and I, you know, they're for 50 cents. Right. So I just sit there for like a good hour just looking at all their books and I found this book. And nice. 10 out of 10 would recommend. Awesome. I don't think I read that one either. Oh, I left it there. So damn, I wish I would have brought it back for you. (laughs) I can get it on Audible. (laughs) There you go. There you go. Um, So let's talk about other true crime stuff. Okay. I know you wanted to bring something up. Yeah. Did you see Taylor Shabiznes, the one that cut up her boyfriend and killed him while on meth, attacked her attorney in court? I did. And he asked to withdraw from her case now. I mean, yeah, I would too. I'd be like, you can't just assault me, ma'am. But he just sat there so nonchalant when it <laughs> happened, didn't he? It looked like he was like shielding himself at least. Like, but he never even stood up out of his chair though. <laughs> he just like scooted his chair back. I'm like, I would have got up and walked the fuck out. Yeah. Yeah. He just I- sat there. While the guard, like, attacked her on the ground. I think maybe some people just don't know how to react in that situation or any, like, high-intensity situations. And that's why people sometimes just freeze. Yeah. I I know I've reacted that way. And I've also reacted in, like, instant, like, I got to do something. So maybe that's... That's true. Yeah. Because when I looked at it, I was like, he doesn't look like he was really scared. Right. He probably but just then he his would, brain wasn't he filed there. a motion to withdraw later. So I guess later it sank in. Or he went home and his wife was like, Yeah, we're not gonna be doing this with this crazy bitch. Yeah, no, it's definitely not worth it. Being physically attacked, hell no. No. By a crazy person. By a crazy person. Yeah. Um, so there is that. And then also, I know this isn't Wisconsin related, but there happened to be an Ohio train derailment in East Palestine, uh, Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if everybody is aware of what had happened. I know you and I are. Um, but a Norfolk freight train that was transporting hazardous uh, materials, which included vinyl chloride and two other ones that I'm not going to try to pronounce. Um, <laughs> just know that they That's are fair. hazardous. Um they got basically uh, dumped in the river um, and obviously in like the grassy areas and shit like that. Um, Crews later did try to do a controlled burn, um, but obviously it's in the water, so it's contaminated. And I've seen videos where people would throw something in there and you can see the actual uh, toxins in there ripple from it. So Mm -hmm. it's, I I feel terrible that they're going through this because yeah. obviously water is so essential. Right. And I hope that they get it figured out. The government gets it figured out. I hope that this uh, Norfolk frame trait people figure something out to help aid them because. Yeah, because um, people are having symptoms from it now, right? Um, You know, I every news article that I, I've i seen is like nobody's being affected by it but I feel like maybe they're downplaying it because how could you not 
I thought I saw something today that people were starting to experience symptoms like scratchy throats and runny noses and things like that. I don't know if that's just people that were like immediately in the area or by the train or what, right. because it just popped up on Twitter and I didn't read the whole story. I didn't read anything today, but as of like last week, that's what I read. And I actually did read that like pets were getting affected by it. Aww. which I will throw down for any dog so let's get yeah. this figured out because we can't have these pets dying because of human error or whatever type of error this was I did see it was because of a like a wheel that was starting to like derail and it like popped off or something like that but it they haven't really gone into it so right something strange is going on Yes. Yeah. Um, I have one more thing. Do you have anything else before I go into that? No, I think that was the Taylor thing was the only thing I had today. Okay. So now let's talk about three discussing men in positions of power. The former Texas right to life political director, Luke Bowen, has pleaded guilty to online solicitation of a 13 year old and sentenced to a whopping five years in prison. Wow. This is a man that is part of an organization that wants to prevent women to have the right to choose what they can and cannot do with their own body. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, wanting to sexually assault a 13-year-old child and you want to heed the advice and listen to whatever this man has to say because it's what? No. No. Um, then there's Utah Church youth leader Kevin Stike, who has pleaded guilty to grooming a 10-year-old child, sexual abuse, and payment of hush money to the victim's family um disgusting Awful. yeah i am just so over the people that cloak themselves in religion and mm -hmm. basically earn the trust of families and parents um and go under the guise of i'm guiding your kids and all of this meanwhile you're a sick pedophile yeah Awful. I'm sick of people abusing their power and taking advantage of women and children in general. Like, Me too. It's disgusting. Women and children are not property. We're not here for your pleasure and your satisfaction. No. Okay, last one is a Florida SWAT officer, Cal Haller, has been charged with multiple counts of possession of child sexual abuse materials. Um. Yeah, like we just said, um, we're done with these sexual predators and pedophiles putting themselves in positions of power um, mm -hmm. and making them seem like they're trustworthy people. And let this be a lesson to people that think, oh, this is just a pastor. This is a congressman, you know, whatever. Yeah. They wouldn't do anything like that. Yes, they will. Yeah. They're not perfect. A lot of them actually put themselves there for a reason, easy mm -hmm. access. 
So don't just think that because they are God-fearing people, they are in positions of power that they won't do these types of things. Be smart. If something doesn't feel right, don't let it happen. Yeah. And don't just trust your kids with people just because of a fucking title. Exactly. Yeah. I thought we would have learned that by now. Apparently. Look at the Catholic church. Apparently we have to preach it until, I don't know, until, I don't know when, but we will preach it until it's not a thing anymore. And unfortunately, I don't think that's ever going to be a thing. Yeah. And teach your kids that, okay, no matter who the person is for them to do any of this shit to them. Make them comfortable enough to come and tell you. Because I know for damn sure if somebody tried to touch my daughter, the first thing she's doing is screaming like a maniac and then calling me and she's going to tell the whole fucking world. Exactly. And that's because you have instilled in your kids that a, a person, an adult, anybody doesn't have the right to hug on you, kiss on you, mm-hmm. touch you, even if it's as you know, minimal as it just being your grandmother or grandfather, if they don't want that, they don't have to have it because again, they are in charge of their own bodies. And Mm -hmm. if they don't feel comfortable, that doesn't mean they're being a brat. That doesn't mean they're being spoiled. That means that that's their boundaries and they are entitled to their boundaries. Yeah. Like I don't even force them to hug me if they don't want to. I'll ask them, like, do you want a hug? And like when my son is cranky, he'll be like, no, right. That's it's- fine. I was like, let me know if you want one later. But I'm never going to be like, you have to give me a hug or you have to hug this person. No, you don't ever have to let anyone touch you. When I'm mad, I don't want anyone to touch me. Forced affection is not cute. No, not and at all. It's not it just because you want to touch on that person. That doesn't mean that they have to let you. Exactly. So- yeah let's just take these respect people's space yeah yeah that's basically it all right today i'm going to tell the story of eleanor roberts and my sources are onfocus.news nbc15.com wisconsinrapidstribune.com and WSAW.com. On November 27, 1984, Eleanor Roberts' son contacted the Nakusa police stating that he had found his mother dead in her home in the town of Saratoga. A forensic pathologist was called in to conduct an autopsy, and the autopsy determined that Eleanor died from a combination of blunt force trauma and numerous sharp force injuries which based on the shape and other factors he believed came from her being stabbed with scissors. Oh, it's just a horrible thing to stab people with. Not that there's like a right thing to stab people with, but. I think stabbing is like the most, it's so intimate. Like you're, you have to be really close to do that to somebody. And you, people don't die by being stabbed once unless it's like in the heart. So you have to really Give it all you got, obviously, because yeah. people stab It's not trouble. easy to stab people. No. So that's like a new level, or not a new, another level of just sick. Mm-hmm. 
And the forensic pathologist stated that there was no natural causes related to her death and they are linked to homicide, which I think would seem pretty obvious because I don't know how sharp force injuries would possibly be natural causes, but apparently he needed to tell people that. <laughs> Unfortunately, investigators were able to get some evidence from the scene. So they collected finger and palm prints from the bathroom area and some bloodstained samples. As evidence processing technologies and DNA analysis advanced over the last 35 years, they would repeatedly test the evidence to see if they could find any matches. I love that. Yeah, me too. But some of this story is going to make you very angry. Oh, God. In 1988, three separate palm prints were determined to match this man, Sarver. They matched his right palm. But for some reason, he was not arrested in 1988. Again, in 2019, his palm prints were again found to be a match. Why we didn't believe it the first time? That that remains to be seen. (laughs) Nobody really knows. (laughs) Oh, we know. Oh, okay. I shouldn't say we know. We can infer. (laughs) Okay. So Sarver was first interviewed on December 3rd, 1984. So he was pretty much immediately a suspect. Right. He told investigators that the day before Eleanor's death, he was busy, he was shooting pool, he had a witness, he was there with them at Evergreen Lanes. However, in 1988, when the palm prints came back as his, the witness claims that he does not specifically remember that night, but he definitely didn't remember shooting pool with Sarver. Okay. He's like, I can't remember the details, which, I mean, how could you remember the details of something that happened four years ago if you didn't do anything crazy? Right. So Sarver was again interviewed on May 1st of 1985, and he said his last contact with Eleanor would have been in the summer of 1984. Then he was interviewed again in 1988, and he confirmed that his last contact with her was either late summer or early fall which at the time um, was consistent with the records of the investigators. So like, okay, I guess your story is staying basically the same. And he said that he had never been inside her home before. So where did the palm prints come from, bro? Right. But investigators said that Sarver gave them several different alibis during that interview, but none of them could be confirmed. Yeah, if you have to and give back several to- alibis, that's... <laughs> yeah, I have several alibis ready to go. Okay. That doesn't sound suspicious at all. No. <laughs> like, the police come to say, hey, what were you doing three days well, ago? Like, I have, several, I have several alibis, Your Honor. <laughs> yeah. I'd be like, do tell. I want to hear them all, sir. <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you all of them. And let me not be able to confirm a single one. <laughs> Yep. And you just told me 10 stories and all of them were a lie. Don't check out. They're, you're, they're not checking out. <laughs> Nothing's checking out. And so another witness was like, no, I wasn't with him either. I was by myself that night. I'm glad that they're not. So they're all just like, I'm not sticking up for this dude. Right. And then another witness said that around the time of Eleanor's death, Sarver was having financial difficulties in that he had actually borrowed $2,000 from the witness right after the murder, like shortly thereafter, and he was never paid back. Hmm. So you're trying to use people as an alibi that you owe $2,000 to. That's a bad plan. 
That's so bad. <laughs> That's bad so planning bad. right there. <laughs> mm-hmm. He is a terrible criminal. <laughs> In 2005, a confidential informant came forward and told an investigator that Sarver had told him 17 years ago that he had killed a lady. Including in the conversation that Sarber said he had karate chopped her to the neck. And Eleanor's injuries were consistent with that motion. So you mean to tell me that you can karate chop somebody and they will die? Um, I don't know if that killed her because she had all the stabbings too. Maybe it knocked the wind out of her or something. Oh, right. Or just caused her to fall i'm not exactly sure what injury that would create but it's crazy yeah it's, i thought people only did that on movies yeah like i was just about to say who goes for karate chops when they're doing... i've never tried that before me maybe either? next next time we get in a fight somewhere we'll throw <laughs> it in there just to spice it up, spice it up. <laughs> you see me falling um... off the wall <laughs> Yeah, we're gonna have to do like some off the wall flips and kicks as well. Yeah. I don't know who we're fighting either or where we're going. <laughs> I don't know, but it's gonna happen and we are okay. prepared. <laughs> okay, maybe we should just make a TikTok <laughs> of just us flying and karate chopping in the air. Yes, yes. All right, so then another pair of witnesses had a conversation that they shared with investigators about. How Sarber had admitted to entering Eleanor's home through the back door to rob her, but he was surprised that she was home. And then he beat her to death by accident. One of the witnesses told the investigators that Sarber told them over the phone that he hit Roberts in the back of the head and neck using some type of weapon to kill her. So this case would eventually go to trial at the end of last year, and he was found guilty of killing Eleanor after all this fucking time. Right. And he has been sentenced to life in prison, but unfortunately, he will be eligible for parole to apply for parole within the next 20 years because he had to be sentenced under the old laws because that's when it happened. That's stupid. It is. And according to investigators, Eleanor, who was 71 at the time of her death, she did have multiple stab wounds, which he kept leaving out when he told his stories about his karate chopping and fighting people. And right. he left out that he was stabbing a 71-year-old woman. His defense is not buying the verdict, though, of course. They said that if the evidence against him was concrete, a trial would have happened years ago. But the jury was not going for that. And as we look more into the case, it appears that one of the main reasons that a trial did not happen years ago was closely related to Sarver's position as an informant for the Wood County Sheriff's Department drug unit. Bogus. Mm-hmm. Wow. Through this position, Sarver drew an unhealthy and highly unethical relationship with Detective Brian Illington, who would eventually go on to be the sheriff of Wood County. Oh, my God. If people don't know, Wood County is incredibly corrupt. I didn't know. It's incredibly corrupt. Like, <laughs> Oh, my God. 
Like been investigated by the feds for their corruption in their police department. That is so sad. It's like the stories that I could tell you, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to tell you because I don't want them to come to my house. Not on air. Not on air. <laughs> not on air. <laughs> but so it was obvious that this former sheriff had gotten too close to his informant and facts were revealed during the trial that illustrated this. So one of the first things was Sarber was not fingerprinted when he started working as a CI. That's one of the first things that they have to do because they need to know if you're committing other crimes. They need to know if they are going on a crime scene. If your fingerprints are there, that you were supposed to be there on like buy money and stuff, they need to be able to eliminate your prints. So it's just like a basic thing. Seriously. If you're an official CI. He wasn't fingerprinted until two years later when a different detective was like, what the fuck? Why haven't what? you been fingerprinted? And then he did it. And this one is really great. Detective Illington attended Sarber's wedding. Mm-mm. No. Yeah. Mm-mm. Which is definitely not standard procedure. No. I would no. say not. And then at trial, there was questions asked about Sarber getting blackout drunk while being supervised by Illington. And that was clearly against department policy as well. Right. In 1988, when Sarber was being scrutinized about his role in Eleanor, his possible role in Eleanor's murder, when they first came up with those palm prints, Mm -hmm. for some reason, they had this interesting meeting at a cabin in Adams County. And for some reason, Sarber and Illington were alone at the cabin before the other officers arrived to question him. So no one knows what was discussed between the two before the other officers came. But my thing is, like, why the fuck were you meeting at a remote cabin anyways to discuss a homicide? Is this real life? Like, this This is is real life. This is real life. I'm just checking because it's ludicrous. That's. Yeah, I was reading this like, if I didn't know the things that I know, I would think this was made up. But it's not at all shocking. And I'm sad that it's not shocking. It, isn't it sad? Yeah. So according to Jerome C. Lippert, who wrote this article, there was one other pertinent fact that didn't come up at trial. He said in the 1990s, a member of the Roberts family, which is Eleanor's family, went to talk to Sheriff Ellington with a copy of a Reader's Digest that contained an article on new and improved DNA tests. Like they brought the article to him like, hey, we can do this. They have this new DNA testing out. Do you think that would work in Eleanor's case? And he looked at the family member and tossed the Reader's Digest back at them and said, that suspect is a friend of mine. That is bogus. I would have leaped across that table mm-hmm. and choked that man. Yeah. Me too. No. Yeah. This attitude and the conflict might be part of the reason that it took so long for this case to go to trial. Yeah. Yeah. And there are other cases that are currently unsolved that are also blaming Ellington on them being unsolved. So there's like a hit and run of this girl, Deidre, and her family swears. Like, he knows what happened and he helped cover it up. So if you Google his name, you can find a whole bunch of other crazy stuff. Okay. Yeah. 
But now after 38 years, they finally got this conviction. And Judge Nicholas Brazo Jr. was upset that he would not have any say in the sentencing, that he could only give him life with the possibility of parole, because he said that he shouldn't have the opportunity to get parole. That this time that he had right now, all this life that he lived was his time for parole. He got to have a family he didn't deserve to have. He got to have all this life that he didn't deserve to have. So he shouldn't be able to get parole. But unfortunately, he has the possibility. I doubt they're going to give it to him, though. I hope not. If you And Starber was only 21 when this happened. He's 59 now. So that whole time, he was free. Working with the sheriff's department, doing whatever he wanted to do. Right. Like, the fact that he was living a life where he could just get away with anything and even crimes is just ludicrous. It's just, it's laughable. Yeah. The judge said he's had the opportunity to live a full life, to raise a family that maybe he shouldn't have had the opportunity to do. It's a good thing that he did it because there are good people in this world, but there isn't any, nothing in my mind or heart that makes me think that he should have an opportunity to get out of here. No, I agree. Fuck him. Fuck him. And maybe people should look further into the police. Right. Yeah. And I I love when families do their own work too. Like they don't just leave it in the hands of the police, even though that's yeah. what you're supposed to do if something like this were to occur. It just yeah. it's just smart to be like, you know what, I'm also going to look into things because it's my loved one and I I mm-hmm. need answers. Yeah. And I don't want people to think all the police involved in this case were bad because after Ellington was out of the picture, there was detectives that dedicated their lives to finding her killer. And three of those detectives, even though they were retired, they were still at the trial, still at the sentencing, supporting the family. Like they're basically a member of the family now. There's very good detectives involved too, but there's definitely some dirty, shady things going on as well. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to what we started with is that Mm -hmm. people put themselves in positions of power for good and bad. So, yeah, exactly. All right. Well, great job. That was an amazing story. And I know I'm going to be looking more into that. So thank you. (laughs) I'll send you the cop's name so you can look and be like, what? Is this real? Yes. It is. It is. Definitely is. Okay. So I'm going into the missing persons case of Greg John May, and I got my sources from My Life of Crime, The Cinemaholic, The Progressiveness, CNN, Health, PBS, and WEAU. Um, So this story begins in Wisconsin, but its windy road of, of a journey leads us to other states and perfect strangers. So It doesn't end in Wisconsin. It's still Wisconsin-related in my eyes. So Greg was the coolest dude around. He was married and had two kids, and he was really good at tattooing uh, and even opened up his own shop, which was a little taboo back then when he uh, opened it up, but he still made it very successful and had it for over 20 years. So people people went to him. And he had fun with it. 
He also had another cool hobby. He was an antique dealer who loved to collect Civil War guns. He was totally mm-hmm. about having all these really cool uh, old relics of guns. So he was just, he loved it. Um, he was nomadic. So he left Lake Geneva, Wisconsin and moved to Bellevue, Iowa in late 2000. Although he was considering moving to Florida. Although he had nomadic tendencies, he had a strong tie to all ties to all of his family, including his children and his current girlfriend. Um, he was even on good terms with his ex-wife, so he harbored no resentments with anybody. He was a good-spirited man who just loved life, so everybody in his life spoke very highly of him. He even had plans for his kids to come visit. Uh, his new place in Iowa, but all of a sudden he just stopped communicating with everyone and he went radio silent. Um, So that was the first red flag for his family to know that something wasn't right because he wasn't like that at all. So days turned into weeks and his family finally filed a missing persons report on January 2001. And meanwhile, let's shift to our focus on a perfect stranger, a woman by the name of Ellen Leach, who was sleuthing all on her own. Um, So she was combing the internet, the Doe Network archives, newspapers uh, for a match to a head that was found in a bucket full of concrete. She was fully invested in this specific case because of the gruesomeness of it and just like you don't really hear that ever no I've never heard that before she wanted answers and you see in March 2000 uh March of 2005 that had uh was dumped at a truck stop in Missouri so totally like unrelated right Mm -hmm. one day she went to the donut work and found that there was an update to the missing persons case she was working on a clay reconstruction of the head was made and posted on the Doe Network. So they were making some progress. Mm -hmm. Then on March uh, 23rd, 2001, authorities found Greg's car miles away from his new home. This was not a good sign for authorities. And later they responded to another tip that further deepened their suspicions. So it started off as like a missing persons case. And now it's just looking really grim. The police went to an auction house and found that there was a large Civil War gun collection that was just sold to them. And authorities investigated and inquired on who sold the rare collection and turned out that the person somewhat uh, was familiar to Greg. It was Julie Miller's mother, which was a girlfriend of Douglas DeBruin, went and sold the antique guns. And you may be wondering, who is Julie Miller? Who is Douglas DeBruin? Well, Douglas was Greg's best friend, who went by the nickname of Moose, who was an Mm ex-convict. Julie was his girlfriend at the time, Douglas's girlfriend. Okay. And another thing, after investigating neighbors of Greg's, um, stated that they witnessed Julie and Douglas loading up a truck with items from inside of Greg's house. And the police were like, bingo. Uh, mm-hmm. They had a solid lead, and lucky for them, Julie and Douglas lived in a trailer not too far from the auction house, and the police went to that trailer right away. They're like, this is all linking up. 
not looking too good. We have to follow up and see what's going on. Yeah. They discovered a lot of Greg's possessions there and a lot of pictures of them living up their lives, which is gross. They kind of consider themselves as a Bonnie and Clyde. They oh, wow. then tracked the couple vacationing in Flagstaff, Arizona in April of 2001. After arresting them and going through what they had found, um, they found pictures of them living it up and some of the Greg's belongings in the background of those pictures. Mm. Of course, they denied the, the theft of the Civil War collection when police questioned them. Um, they basically said, oh, no, the, he gave it to us. Like, we had every right to do what we wanted with it. Okay. So the Iowa prosecutors decided to take Julie Ann Miller and Douglas Donald DeBruin to trial, even with no body. Because remember, nothing was connected yet. Right. They had to convince the jury that a murder even took place. So they gave immunity to Julie for her testimony in an effort to make their case stronger. It was the deal with the devil since she was complicit and actually present during the murder and helped dispose of his remains. Yeah. First, she claimed that they dumped his body in the Mississippi River, but the police weren't buying it. She was just full of shit. Mm -hmm. So let's remember our friend Ellen. She was still hard at work and went on the Iowa Missing Persons Clearinghouse website because the reconstruction rang a bell for her. She went yeah. on there and found Greg May's missing persons report, and that bell rang even harder. She's like, I just have a feeling about this. I need to look into this further. So she immediately wrote the Iowa director for the Doe Network with Greg May's information so that they can match the cases and just waited for someone to give her a response. Mm -hmm. And she finally got a response after all this other work that she did, and it was a positive match. Oh, wow. Ellen felt sad, but vindicated that all of her hard work paid off. A local Bellevue dentist matched the dental records to the skull that was found, scientifically proving that Greg was murdered. That was him. This was the last minute bombshell prosecutors needed for the trial. And with everything present, the jury found Douglas de Bruin guilty of first degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. And because Julie lied so much, even under oath, the judge sentenced her to five years of perjury. So she still got something, even though they had the deal. Yeah, she should have gotten more, but... Right. Ellen helped the May family, prosecutors, investigators, and the Donut Network. She truly is an amazing person. No, just nobody is like her. I mean, a lot of people are like her, but mm -hmm. she's definitely one of a kind. Yeah. She That's never a lot of work. Seriously, and I was just about to say, she never got paid. She did all of this on her off time, and she did the damn thing. Mm -hmm. Ellen Leach was quoted to say, anybody can find somebody, and I found that to be very powerful, end quote. And if you're interested in a cool book about this story, there is one called The Skeleton Crew, How Amateur Sleuths Are Solving America's Coldest Cases. There are also documentaries that have been made called Extreme Forensics, Road Trip Killers, and Six Degrees of Murder, Mississippi Mayhem. And that is a crazy and an unfortunate story of Greg John May, a wonderful man who was taken too soon by savages who disguised themselves as friends and the powerhouse, in this case, Ellen Leach. 
That's crazy. Good for her. Seriously. Yep. That's it. <laughs> Great job. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I had fun today. I'm glad that we're back in the swing yeah. of things and we love you. We love you guys. Bye. 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 All the Sins of Wisconsin was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Fallon and Mims. Thank you so much to all of our listeners, supporters, friends, and family that continually allow us to do what we love. If you love our show as much as we love you, please give us a glowing rating and review. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to see what we are up to and email us your sinner tales at allthesinsofwi at gmail.com. Episodes of All the Sins of Wisconsin are available for free wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't Don't forget, forget, we we love you. you.